All right, Richard. Yes. Right now. Right now? Right. Metamorphosis. Okay. By it has Franz energy Kopp. beings in it. I know. What I know. Does that No, but it has energy being. Okay, fair. We, 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 we must remember that there's only one of them. I'm just going to start, before we get into any conversation about an episode that features an energy being, I'm <sighs> just going to start putting that out there at the beginning, because I know that that is going to color your entire perception of the episode. I'm sorry. Like, I think the worst thing ever would be that um, Chekhov meets an energy being, and the two of them have a conversation, and then they rape. That would be like a horrible episode of Star Trek. Can two people rape? Isn't that like... Yes, it's called gang rape, and it's really bad. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, all right. So metamorphosis. So Chekhov was not in this episode. I know, which gives it a sol- which will give it an extra triple when, yeah. we, when we score it later. Okay, so the, the energy being took away one triple, and the, the, yes. the absence of Chekhov will add a triple. Yes. Okay. So, so what did you think about this episode? Um, it was good until Kirk made a mistake and changed the entire tenor of the episode, because this episode was not about two lovers until Kirk decided it. This episode was about a mother and child. Okay. Uh, see, I studied this kind of shit in college. Like, uh, uh, the relationship between the companion and between Zephron is... Zephram. Zephram. Um, Not Zephron. Between Nora Ephron and the companion... Sure. ...is, um, is one of the ambivalent mother-child relationships. Uh Um, he is fed and clothed and kept and protected by this entity, uh, who he does feel a... Responsibility, you know, he feels a responsibility towards, and he feels gratitude to, and love for, and is you know happy about that. But at the same time, is at the stage where he wishes to go out into the world on his own and provide for himself. So it's that love hatred relationship. <clears throat> uh, this is very textbook. This is like Lacan one hundred one. Um, they completely miss that. I, I think her completely misinterprets the relationship says it's a lover, and that kind of hijacks the episode and makes it from a really interesting episode into one that has is probably one of the most disturbing Star Trek episodes I have seen so far. Okay. Well, let's stop pretending that Kirk is a real person, and let's talk about uh, who wrote this episode. Um, I believe it was Gene Alcoon. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what's going on there? I mean, because obviously... Um, like I said, Kirk is not a real person, and so Kirk has has no motivation. But 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 if you if you cap say that you basically can't talk about works in general. No, but I'm just saying. I mean, I I think level. it's more interesting to think about it in terms of the writer, just because uh, presumably, um, you know, he okay, he had an idea about what he was writing, and uh, unconsciously or not, um, you know, and this is not something I had thought about before. Uh, the mother and child relationship. I you know, this episode is fine, but. You know, it, it's yeah. kind of there. Uh, is that he does set it up like that? I agree with you. Yeah. I mean, that kind of you know, I, I I do find that to be an accurate reading, honestly. But yeah, uh, that's not how the episode is set up ultimately. So yeah, which, so what which, does that mean? Which means that this is a the episode basically squanders its potential. Um, up until the point where Kirk is saying, you know, oh, you know, treats it like a lover. Um, even afterwards and there's this really almost endearing scene where they're explaining to you know Nora Ephron that this companion is you know treating him like a girlfriend you know and you know that he 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 gets you know disturbed as hell about it he's like you know that's horrible you know he almost feels like he's been uh, 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 violated by this you know w- what he interprets to be sex between him and an alien creature um and everybody it, it is basically saying, well, that's fine. You know, Spock, who is a, you know, the product of a mixed species uh, union, is basically says, well, you know, you both got something out of it. You know, you both care for each other. That's fine. And everyone's like, yeah, why not? You know, which I think is a very nice little, uh, uh, it's a sign of where society's at, that they are so willing to accept an alternative relationship, assuming that it is based on, you know, mutual caring. Right. Um, I figured that part of his extreme reaction to why he's so disgusted by that is not because of the xenophobia, but because this is his mother. You know, the, the thought of maybe a, an alien creature that he felt was, you know, an equal 
would be fine. But this is his parent, and that would squick anybody out. So that's where I thought the episode was going. And then they decide to do some really terrible things with this female character in this episode. Well, okay, there's a couple different things going on there, right? Because, like I said, I do think you're right in that respect that the episode definitely is uh, setting this companion up to be uh, a mother figure to Zephram Cochran. And if you think about it in terms of that... Uh, the companion is alone. The companion cannot reproduce. Um, yeah. Provides for Zephram Cochran. Uh, provides heat. Provides food. Provides all these things. Um, except for uh, companionship, really. I mean, they yeah. call it the companion, but it's it's, it's not. kind of an ironic name. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, so that's interesting. And then, sort of, um, you know, the, the obviously the character of the commissioner in this episode and by the way federation officials like at this point in the series are basically all useless i mean they're just whiny as hell yeah uh, whether they're man or woman it has nothing to do with that they're just whiny 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 but i think you know it, it's colored a little bit because i think kirk sees zephram cochran's reaction to the commissioner right yeah and i can see it one of two ways i can see that you know, Gene Alcoon didn't exactly know what he was doing and there was some sublimation going on here. Yeah, it seems or, like it ends in a weird sexual fantasy that he Right. <laughs> or, or that he did know what he was doing. And perhaps, I mean, I don't know if this is an accurate read, but Kirk, perhaps he was setting it up to say, well, Kirk sees Zephram Cochran's reaction to the commissioner. Which is basically like the reaction of a man who has been in prison for thirty uh, years to, a, almost, to a woman. He almost explicitly says so. He yeah, says who like, knows? Oh, you're 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 water to a thirsty man or something like that. Or yeah, there's a weird line. There like are that. some weird things going on there. Um, so perhaps it was set up so Kirk fed into that and thought Maybe. that Zephram Cochran had a different relationship with the companion than perhaps Zephram Cochran or the companion realized they had. Um, so maybe this episode is just based on a misunderstanding of Kirk's and not, not a sort of explicit well, misreading. I mean, you know, misreading of the situation. It's sort of a, it's sort of, it's a misreading of the situation, but it's not intentional. Oh yeah. And that's, that's definitely what I meant. I didn't mean to say, oh, well, Kirk, you know, does this evil thing of getting, no, he just, it doesn't click to him that this is a mother and child. And, but the thing is, this character of the commissioner is a fascinating character because she is the victim of the fact that the show was made in 1968. Um, when she is first seen, she is this hyper-competent, hyper-deadline, we need to be doing this, we need to be doing that, you know, this is... And she's... So her situation is she is sent to this planet to basically broker a treaty uh, to stop a war. Uh, the details are kind of vague, but it doesn't really matter. It's um, the MacGuffin of the episode. Yeah, exactly. It gets them where they need to be. And she gets this disease on the planet. They don't have the means to treat her there, so she's en route back to the Enterprise for treatment. It's apparently a relatively minor disease unless you're stranded. And, of course, they get stranded on this planet. Um I think it's very interesting that they give it a double time limit on this episode because all, all having the disease, having the plague has been done in other episodes before. It was the plot device in Miri. Um, and being stranded is another one done in countless episodes. And we, if we don't get here, the war will break out has also been done. Um, so this is kind of everything all in one. Right. Um, but it's kind of made very clear through this entire thing. Like, if she's not there, this planet is going to blow up. Like, she's – you know, not only is she about to die, but millions of people will die if she does. And then she doesn't need to at the very end because Kirk says, well, I'm sure they can get some other woman to take care of this. Like, oh, it wasn't a real war to begin with. You know? Right. I mean, the implication there is like, well, no, because, you know, a, a, a person who is uh, a diplomat in that kind of situation, um, we can just sub them out because you don't need any sort of specialized knowledge of the culture, of the people, of anything. Yeah. It's just, yeah, you can just go ahead. They're all the same. I mean, it's one of those things where you would think that the second she took ill, if there were somebody who could replace her, they would have that person flying en route to the planet just in case. You know, if the worst does happen and this is that sensitive situation, they need somebody in there as much as possible because, let's face it, you put a new face in to 
countries or whatever that are having on the brink of war are not necessarily going to trust someone they haven't been working with this whole time. Yeah, so may- you get them in as early as possible just to – it just makes sense. Yeah, and maybe that's a failing of the episode. Maybe it needed a different setup. That's – yeah. I, I, who, who she is, what she's doing. I mean you could make up a, a you know many other scenarios that, feel- that aren't so – I mean, it's almost. I wouldn't say. I wouldn't go so far as to say it's offensive, but it's, it it it's a yeah. weird like. It just it kind of takes the legs out of the episode at the very end because the commissioner set up as this woman who's very important, very competent. Like she knows her shit. She knows what she's doing. She's yeah. in, extremely important to stop this war. And then the end of the episode's like, eh, well, it wasn't true in the beginning. I, it wasn't true at all. You know, it's like, well, yeah. okay, but what? I mean, there's a part when she says, you know. Uh, because, you know, Zephyrin is, leave, it wants to leave. And, you know, she says in her fever, like, oh my God, like, I've, I've been really good at my job. I've done nothing but work. And, you know, I haven't had time to have a relationship. You oh, know. well, that. Yeah. And, you know, he's running away from it. So. I rolled my eyes at that <laughs> part because, like, I just, I think I wrote in my notes something like, oh, well, of course, the woman is going to feel bad that she's never been in. It's like, really? I mean. And see, while I, I can't say that's not necessarily a legitimate concern because to not have that area of a, of your personal life, many people do feel that that's unfulfilling, both men and women. And, you know, one could say, oh, God, I'm at the point where, you know, it wouldn't have clicked for her that she was missing that. But yeah, what but it's I always the woman. Do... It's always the woman that says that in well, Star Trek. Well, where I figured they could have gone with it because I thought they were doing the mother and child thing was that, you know, she would go back, stop this war, but then agree to have a kind of more mutual uh, agreement with the companion. She would, you know, maybe she would be. You know, trying to figure out the companion's culture and learning because there is certainly a lot to learn on that planet. Um, She take that way. The companion has company. The woman does have the experience of love, but it's also one which gives her agency. Yeah. And then but they basically say, oh, you can't love him because you're to the companion. You can't love him because you're not human. She possesses the woman, says the parts of her which were dying have are gone and now it's just us so you don't know what part of her is where the companion begins and this woman ends i don't know where her personality is i don't know if it's a solid merge or the companion has just kicked out any remains of this woman's humanity or what all i know is that zephram says at one point gee you know this universe is new to both of us instead of saying we can go explore it together he says I'm going to explore it and then I'll show it to you. Right. And that was fucked up too. Like, I don't know. This is, this is a, the first half of the episode was awesome. And then it just creeped me the hell out. Well, you know, it's interesting, right? Because, okay, there's a couple different things there. I think number one, you know, I don't know how much of this is intentional or not, but I think that you could make the argument that Zephram Cochran is acting in a more old-fashioned way than perhaps Kirk is because Zephram Cochran is supposed to be a man out of time and he's supposed to be, have been stranded on this planet for, what, a hundred years? yeah. And, and they do establish that. He he does have, like, at the, at the very beginning of the episode, he immediately identifies Spock as a Vulcan. Mm-hmm. So at least we know that... He's been to space. He, yeah. Humans had contact with Vulcans a hundred years mm-hmm. ago. Um but he seems really squicked out by the companion, and he seems really squicked out by the idea that, like, an alien – of an alien culture that he doesn't understand that he's not really getting. So on that level, I think it's interesting because they're almost setting Zephram Cochran up as some sort of xenophobe. And, you know, there's – you could make the argument that sexism is a part of that. Now, Well, I would the, – the one reason I would say not is because of the – Kirk is, you know, the, the the value of this show. So kind of whatever Kirk says is how the show feels. Um, and Kirk very much doesn't, you know, care about the relationship between Cochran and the uh, companion. And, you know, when he, Spock and McCoy are talking about it, they're basically saying, like, what an old-fashioned attitude. Like, they're implicitly criticizing that, and the show is criticizing that attitude. Kirk's reaction to the, you know, this companion is now possessed of this woman and they're just going to stay there and whatever 
is just a mild amusement and condoning all of that. I think if the show believed that that attitude, the sexism that Cochran is displaying were wrong, they would have thrown in a line somewhere where it's saying, you know, maybe Kirk could, Kirk could have very easily says, no, why don't you two explore the galaxy together? Easy. But then again, the companion does have agency and the companion never says anything that she wants to leave. So, and they even well, say the that the companion can't, can't leave. leave. So that, why would they say that? Well, because that would, I mean, that could definitely set up the, you know, why don't you explore together? Actually, I can't, you know? And then they Well, she said, I mean, they know that though. I, only the companion knows this at this point. He, he says they will go together right before she reveals to anybody that she can't leave the planet. Oh, well, I don't remember the sequence of events. I wrote it down in my notes. Oh, well, look at you. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it, 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 yeah, there's there's even a small part of me that thinks that you could make the argument that that Kirk was just using the situation because it's a lot like he realizes that Zephram Cochran um, wants to fuck a lot more than he needs a mother. <laughs> and so he like kind of just the companion doesn't have human emotions, perhaps, and doesn't understand love. And they have that weird like conversation through the universal translator, which I thought was interesting the way they explained the technology. Yeah, I they. Like that, that. I think they don't ever really explain it again. Yeah, um, they basically say it's a brainwave thing, and it's you know dealing with universal concepts and they they very specifically say it's not 100 percent accurate which, which i think is an interesting thing which well that's interesting and then also um it's interesting that they they say yes it does have it, it uses universal concepts of which men and women are one it's like well no they're not like well we know this now there 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 is um I, I, I don't think gender theory had been... I'm not even talking about gender theory in humans. I'm talking about, like, oh. you know, androgynous uh, other life forms. I'm talking about, you know, asexual reproduction. I'm talking about all of the... Like, that was okay. known. Yeah, no, so you're right. If fair, you're, fair in your point. space adventure show that features, like, alien life, if you are saying that man and woman are, are universal constants, and that's a little weird. Well, what they could be saying, and while obviously I know from many uh, uh, many different angles that that's an outdated concept or an, uh, an incorrect concept, it could be possible that he's talking about in sentient civilizations or civilizations that they can contact. Again, devil's advocate here. You know, you What not- about the Horta? The Horta was very specifically a female. I mean, maybe maybe female means they the, never said that. They never said that the well, Hort, the Horta can lay eggs, but they never said that the Horta was a female. I mean, they did say that it was a mother, but that's more of a cultural thing than anything else. They were just imprinting their own stuff onto the Horta. Well, it depends. Well, I on... always understood the Horta to just be an asexual being that could you know fertilize its own eggs. I mean that that was my understanding of it. So, well, we, I mean, it, it depends on what you consider the definition of female to be. I mean. We are taking the concept of female along with gender. What if the concept of female in, as far as this translator goes, is able to reproduce, you know, literally expel young in some kind of way? So if, you know, you know it, it is, that is a very... Uh, Don't male horseshoes give birth? Yes, and I then mean, maybe according to... Seahorses, you mean? Seahorses, yes. Horseshoes. Not male horses. <laughs> yes, male horses give birth. <laughs> um... And maybe according to the – maybe if they talked to a male seahorse, it would think of itself as female. You know, if they had a conversation with it, translator – I know. This is speculation. We're talking way too thing. much about Technobabble right now, so let's just move on. But it's fun. Um, I Okay. Well, I want to move on to other things. But I think finally I want to posit something to you that perhaps you didn't think of. Um, I am not – heterosexual you are not heterosexual we do not understand that whole thing yeah and nor do we want to um <laughs> don't call it a thing it's a rosebud so so i i kind of think that the mother child wife husband stuff that you're having a problem with might be partially because you don't have any direct experience with heterosexuality Hey, I had a girlfriend when I was 16 oh, for like well. two months. No, I'm serious, though. No, you I take never... this seriously. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, gay male relationships and lesbian relationships, like, are different than heterosexual relationships in many respects. And 
like if you take the idea of gender as a real concept and there are differences between the sexes uh which i i believe uh whether it's inherent or whether it's cultured in i think some of it is cultural and some of it is is biological honestly we will talk about this for you know yeah, a long time. But but you know, if we just say yes, yeah, there yeah, are, yeah, there for are the sake differences. Of argument. Then you know, the idea of the wife in a relationship or the woman in a, in a heterosexual relationship as being the caregiver, as being the the, the one who um, is more of the mothering figure, and I mean even the mothering figure t- to her partner. Okay, that's so fair. No, you know, right. I don't think that there's necessarily a, 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 a dichotomy there. No, again, that's something that I don't really look for in relationships, and that. When it exists in a gay male relationship, I find very uncomfortable. I I don't like that disparity. In well, a it's the idea. Well, who's the woman in the relationship? Like that kind that, of thing. Yeah, and the only possible response is beating the shit out of whoever asks you that question. I mean, um, yeah, I guess what I look for in a partner is a very different series of things. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I can't see how that relationship between him and companion lady would be at all fulfilling but and i mean certainly that i mean certainly you could make the argument that that kind of stuff is more cultural than biological because of course there is a lot of that stuff that uh you know in in many relation in many heterosexual relationships nowadays um you know those dynamics are not there and there are always you know uh, you know there are always exceptions but you know 50 yeah the relationships now on average compared to the relationships 50 years ago when the show was on even 50 years before that you know you picked your prairie family or something like that they're gonna have very different male female roles uh that will be unrecognizable to an average 60s suburban couple right so yeah i guess and i mean there is always the the whole idea too that you know feminism and and equality of the sexes is a nice you know sociological fiction that is allowed by, you know, easy access to birth control. So, yeah, there's all these things. I mean, you know, there's there's too many issues here probably for us to to unpack. And and we're not running a a gender sociology podcast. But um, if we did, I'm sure it would be great. Oh, yes. Uh, But I just, you know, I just want to throw that out there as something else to think about in terms of this episode specifically. You have blown my mind, man. Well, Well, good. You know what I loved? What? The fact that they remembered that the shuttle was called the Galileo, and I love that 60s, like, yeah. modern script on the side of it. That look, you know, obviously it looks extremely dated now, but you can picture how, like, with it that looked back in the day. Yeah. It looked probably very elegant and sleek. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you do realize that they just built that, and it's not that they remembered. I mean, that was just, like, a prop that they built. I know. They didn't, like, rebuild it each time. Yeah, but it's nice to see continuity when it does crop up in the show. Right, Because yeah. it is fairly rare for it, too. So, okay, let, let's talk a little bit about Zephram Cochran, because we've talked a lot about the companion and the relationship there. But um, in terms of revealing a little bit more about the backstory of this world, did you think that it was effective at all? Actually, I didn't because there was nothing inherent to the plot of Good, the episode. Good, because I don't either. Because why it was him. All we need, all we know is that some guy discovered warp, which, I mean, the fact that it exists implies that somebody discovered or invented it. I'd assume someone discovered dilithium. Someone developed the process that dilithium was made by fuel, you know, you know into fuel. Somebody figured out how to weld a starship together. Somebody, fi- you know, all of these things and... You know, it's just, okay, you know, it doesn't tell me anything more about the world beyond just, this was discovered and here's the guy's name. Yeah, I think, you know, there's, it's interesting if you're interested in sort of like Federation history and Star Trek history, and of course I am because I'm a huge nerd, but, you know, from a story perspective, um, I think it's interesting to think about Zephram Cochran as the man who invented warp drive, the man who allowed uh, humanity to reach the stars. To, I he mean, Kirk even says, he's like, possible. we're on a thousand planets. You know, we have this, this federation of, of, of cultures now. Uh, you know, we're, we're uh, you know, we're in space. We're all over the place, basically. So I like the idea that the man who invented warp drive and allowed all that to happen is now stuck on a rock. Yeah, but I think that in a way makes the ending a little more... It does give a sense of... How do you phrase this? Okay, so he has... He he, he was the one who enabled any planet in the galaxy to be visited, eventually. 
He is has not seen the, for humans anyway. Fair enough. Yes. Um, he has not seen the progress that his invention has made, really, because he was assumedly only there for the very beginnings of it. He doesn't know the Federation exists. He doesn't really know how many species. You know, the Vulcans, maybe one or two others he's met. Um, so he has literally... The, <laughs> are you thinking in the way that Kirk usually meets aliens? No, no, no. I'm thinking about something that we'll get to much later. Hey, look at you. I know the history and the Star Trek. Yes, I do. Okay, um, he literally has the galaxy before him, and he chooses this woman as the kind of more important and more interesting than the rest of that. I mean, that's a fairly standard concept within romance, but it's a it's done to a higher degree here because rather than, you know, just the world is for me, the galaxy is, and, you know, it's a nice metaphor that I was fine with. Yeah. You know, he realizes that, you know, this woman sacrificed a lot in order to be with him, so he makes an equal sacrifice. On that note, I actually liked it. All right. I can buy that. Yeah. It's, you gave away something, I'll give away the same. I also think it's weird because there's not a lot of the sort of, like, reverence that you would expect from Kirk, Spock, and McCoy towards this man, which I kind of like and kind of don't like because, you know, he pretty much invented the means by which their entire society was able to be formed. And they're not all really that interested in talking to him. Like, if we could talk to someone who was born 150 years ago. I don't know. I think that'd be really cool. Like, I don't know. I just find it weird. I mean, I know it's not the, I know it's not the point of the episode, but making him that person kind of causes an issue in that respect. On the one hand, the closest I can say is Thomas Edison arguably made the world that we have today with, you know, electricity and light and all that possible. He enabled that. But he was a total asshole. Would you necessarily want to be friends with him if you could meet him? I'm not saying they need to be friends with him, but they didn't even seem interested in talking to him. Yeah, but at that point, they have really he- – at that point, we think that there is a heavy concern on the episode specifically that if they don't get this woman back in time, there will be a war broken out. True. So, you know, before this gets taken over, you know, by some – another writer who actually didn't care about that plot line – um, I think that may be a lot of it. Like, yeah, this is great, but we, we, we don't have the time for this, does it? I mean, they explicitly, Spock explicitly says, think of all we can get from this creature. And, uh, you know, if we could, if I could question it and find out its science. And Kirk says, we don't have time for that. You know, we need to get out now. I would say it's on the, on a similar reasoning for that just that would be great if we had infinite time but it's not the case yeah i guess if the ship's historian from the first season was on this away mission perhaps you know they they would have uh yeah that would have been a more interesting thing but none of them are historians so you might be right they might just not be very interested in it i just don't know why they don't just hang out afterwards when everything is resolved like i'm sure the companion would not mind sitting down with spock for a couple hours afterwards i I don't know you'd assume she retained some of her former knowledge and there's no reason why they they couldn't have done that just be like well we're gonna hang around for a couple days end of episode yeah that's how baylock ended true yeah uh okay so uh, i think one final thing that i want to mention and this is just uh, a nice little visual uh directorial thing because you know star trek um the original series sort of, you know, it, it's 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 fine, but I don't think it has a lot of visual panache a lot of the time. Uh, they do this really cool thing towards the end of the episode when the companion uh, inhabits the body of the commissioner, and she's wearing this um, shawl on her head. And yeah. I don't know if you noticed this, but uh, the the companion, when she's inside the commissioner, she, she actually holds the shawl up to her eyes and looks at Cochrane through it because uh, that's what he looked like when she was the floaty energy being. I didn't pick up on that. I thought That's that was actually kind of cute. Yeah. I thought that was a really, really interesting touch visually. Oh, I thought she was just in, you know, delighting in having eyes, no. you know, but that makes so much more sense. Yeah. I, I thought that was really cool. Huh. I don't really have anything to say about it. Oh, it's sweet. Yeah. All right, so um, should we triple it out? It's going to get five triples. Okay. You know, allowing but, for checkoff and energy beings uh, and all of the yeah. calculus of that. So we it would it would have been a four, 
No, it would have been a five, but we took out one. Uh, we, we took out one triple for energy beings, making it a four. But we added a triple because of Chekhov. Oh, so it it's five. Yeah, zero. No, they can't. Yeah, they can't. zero sum. Basically, yeah. I don't know. I, I, I. This episode is okay. Um, I probably would maybe give it a six, but talking about it with you, it seems a lot messier than I thought it was. Yeah, that that's it. It just. It's half-assed. So maybe I'll just give it a five. I'll just, yeah, I'll go with you. Yay, for once. All right, well, do you want to move on to talk about Journey to Babel? Journey to Babel, on the other hand, fucking awesome! And oh, good, because I love Journey to Babel, too. Yeah, it was, it was, I liked the episode because there's, like, seven different plot lines, and each one is really interesting for a different reason, and they all, like, come together at the end and it's a lot of shit going down from pretty much the entire episode which was awesome yeah so there's there's three levels going on there's this sort of like federation wide thing going on with the um uh uh, uh acceptance of court into the federation then you have sort of this you know enterprise level thing with this ship that is attacking them they don't know who it is yeah and then you've got this personal level thing with Spock and his parents. And it all parallels itself really nicely. There's a lot of conflict there and it's all resolved at the end in sort of like these unexpected ways. Yeah. Uh, And there's a lot of stuff going on, but it's all handled extremely well. It's all juggled extremely competently. It's all really well-written. Yeah. And I can see a lot of ways that this episode could have gone horribly awry, but it didn't. And I mean, part of the reason, of course, is that it was written by DC Fontana. So, yeah. you know, she's definitely one of the better uh, script writers that Star Trek had. Um, what, what I like about it is how the, the, the various plot lines do bleed into each other because you have this. Obviously, it turns out that the ship has something to do with another race trying to sabotage this federation party so you have this party going off which has its own tensions and they're made worse by the fact that you know not only only someone sabotaging it but pretending to be a representative of of one of the council races so not only are they fucking up this they're trying to create open warfare with it and then you have which you probably didn't pick up on but it was the orions i i have a question about the orions i picked up on that well okay all right um then you have kirk randomly gets attacked by this by the assassin because he is incapacitated spock has to take command of the ship and because spock has to take command of the ship he can't give the transfusion to sarek which means that that's you know so now kirk has to figure out a way of bluffing spock to, and it's like everything kind of heightens the next conflict and these three plot lines make each other worse in a way yeah i like it because like you said they all do like the three plot lines all make each other one worse and also they're all based on this central idea of like conflict this you know spock and, and his father don't get along there's some discord there that causes some some uh you know kind of almost this anarchy in their relationship uh then you have on the enterprise side you have this actual like physical manifestation of anarchy running around the ship trying to kill people and stabbing kirk um and meanwhile you have the uh, orion ship out there who's also causing problems for them and then on the federation level with the council and the 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 babel and everything um you've got you know actual diplomatic discord between them so it's all about discord it's all about sort of upsetting the balance and at the end of the episode trying to write it well what i think is interesting is uh spock's mother almost explicitly says the theme she says you know you and your father are both stubborn that's a very human emotion isn't it uh and all of these conflicts are in a way based on stubbornness certainly the spock and his father one is certainly the this the council coming to uh arms against each other is due to stubbornness things like that um which this made me feel like yeah i i i liked it because it reminded me of babylon 5 and a bit i love when you have just a bunch of different races and they're all politicking i yeah. really like that um and i love by the way how they kind of trick seed make it look like just through some makeup a couple of false noses and some really interesting costumes and it looks like this gigantic all of these different races which was probably done fairly cheaply 
Yeah, no, sure. I mean, that, the, the the Tellarite makeup in particular is, is is fairly awful, but it works because they really commit to it, and uh, the actors all commit to it, and the costuming really sells it. And you know, it, it's it's definitely not the highest quality stuff, but it all works. No, well, the costume design itself, you see these, they're all very different looking. You see this one group in these like cloaks. You see these two tiny, tiny guys in gold who are, you know, just very like eating everything. And you have, you know, the, the, the race that's pretending to do this is wearing, it looks almost like a very, like a leather armor type of thing. Yeah. Not only, you know, all of these take, you know, most of them take only a minute or two of screen time, but you can get an idea of what their culture is based on that. And no, I absolutely. thought that was interesting. They very much are different races. Yeah, and it's it's funny because there definitely is this idea in Star Trek that, that different species are sort of embodied, embodying, like, one characteristic. Yeah. Right? And, I mean, this is not something that, that Star Trek came up with. This is, you know, something that isn't Lazy st- sci-fi writing. <laughs> yeah. But you have the idea, okay, well, we know Vulcans are logical. We know humans. Well, we know humans are humans because we're human. Um, and then very quickly, uh, the, the Andorians and the Tellarites are set up as uh, more important than the other races because they also get their own species trait. Well, so the guy with the pig nose, and they they just argue. and the, They're argumentative, yeah. Yeah, and then the other one, they're very violent, but with purpose. Mm-hmm. Like, he says, yeah, we're a violent species, but if there's no, no reason for us, we don't bother, you know? Right. Which I thought was, you know, that's an interesting one, too. And uh, just a little backstory for you. This is established later, but uh, Tellarites and Andorians were two of the founding members of the Federation. Okay. So uh, I think that's interesting as well. You had uh, Vulcans, uh, humans, Tellarites. Tellarites and Andorians, um, who all founded the Federation, they they were the ones that founded it. So okay, um, and the, you know it's funny too because you you don't really see a lot of Andorians or Tellarites in the whole franchise, which I, I'm never really sure of why. Uh, it's just not interesting to have a main character who's just combating everything anyone says. They I, they could get annoying after a while. Yeah, but at the same time. There's a way to I, I think it's a missed opportunity because I think they're both like they're both visually interesting races and yeah. you they don't really get into uh, fleshing out their cultures very much, which I think is a missed opportunity. You know, you can definitely have, a, 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 you know, you could say humans are like really emotional and, you know, in, in, a, in a lesser show. You're like, well, we can't use humans because they're just emotional. They're just going to be yelling and crying, right, and, fair and, and and you know all the all the time, and they don't. So yeah, what does a society based on argumentation look like? And I mean, we have had, you know, Spock is a, is a Vulcan, and he's emotion. He's not emotional. I'm sorry. He's he's logical, but he's not a boring character by any no, means. Right. He's definitely got some shades there. So Maybe it would be interesting if you saw a Telluride society and it turned out to be extremely peaceful and like ideal and like everybody was fairly happy. It's just, they're always arguing about everything. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that would be interesting. I guess so. Okay. Fair point. So what did you make of meeting Spock's parents? Uh, well, I know this is a bit of the backstory that I know partially from the show itself. You know, everybody knows that Spock is half human, half uh, Vulcan. Um, I knew the character names based on the Star Trek movie, uh, the 2009 one. And, you know, so that was not a surprise to me. But uh, their characterization here is different from the movie, you know, the movie. And obviously this is more of a canonical uh, characterization. So... It was interesting to see their dynamic. And I mean, the interesting thing, I mean, you know, I don't know how much we want to get into the 2009 movie, but, uh, you know, the interesting thing with the, with their representations in that movie, of course, is that those are the same versions of the characters. Because yeah. The timeline had not split yet. Um, at the same time, Kirk, uh, Spock and his father have a different relationship in that than they do here. Um, they still aren't close. It's still fairly stilted between them, but... Uh, then again, most we see most of the most of their interactions are spoilers after uh, her, his mother dies. So of course, Zarek is going to have a very different mindset. Absolutely, for that. yeah. Um, so maybe that's it's as simple as that. Um, that being the changed event in this case, um, I like their relationship because they very subtly. 
the 2009 version has him give a speech about how I did love your mother, you know, and all of this. This, you see them doing this. So they have this little, like, hand-holding thing where they just, like, touch their two fingers to each other. And, you know, they do it, and they, anytime they're in public, they're doing it together. But there's this scene where they have in private, and he's, you know, Sarah is being very logic, 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 logic. And, you know, that's very annoying. Where, you know, And, you know, she's getting frustrated, and then he just holds out his hand, and they just touch hands. And he gives this this, like, an eighth of a smile. Yeah. And it's... It's really sweet that in, you know, in the privacy of his own home with his wife, he does allow that tiny bit of emotion. And obviously, having lived with him for as long as she did, she recognizes that for the outpouring that it is. I think that's a really cute moment and a very subtle thing they do. And it's not anything that they really ever get into specifically, but I think it's interesting to think about uh, what kind of Vulcan Sarek is because, of course, it's not common for a Vulcan to marry a human and what, what made him want to marry her and what made him want to have a child with her. Uh, and I don't remember if I'm confusing this episode with the movie, the movie explains that it was a logical decision based on, you know, to be an ambassador, one would need to, you know, understand human culture and it's good for political reasons. And, you know, I assume there are some other reasons that specifically she was, you know, chosen to be his wife. Yeah. Maybe she is, I, I, I don't know what her deal is outside of that, if she's somebody who's studying Vulcan his culture or something like that, you know, if she is herself a scientist or something like that, or she has a logical mind. I don't know, it, but... It's, it, it's funny, though, because with so many decisions by Vulcans that deal with what we would consider to be at least partially emotionally motivated decisions, their logic seems like a perfunctory exercise yeah and i think that there's something interesting there it seems a way of justifying something that you know maybe he had met this woman and he had fallen in love with her and then the well you know it would make sense to marry her because you know logic is a justification not the reasoning behind exactly that, that makes sense too yeah, and I mean, I think it's interesting as well that you see that Vulcans can hold grudges and Vulcans can be be stubborn. And they're, you know, neither one of them would ever admit that that's what they're doing, but that is what they're doing because, you know, logically, if you're a Vulcan, <laughs> what sense does it make to not speak to your son? Well, this, you know, what I think is very interesting at the end is, so you have this bit where Kirk is incapacitated and Spock has command of the ship now because, you know, He's the next in line. Um, and up till this point, he was very grudgingly agreeing to give the transfusion to his father. He almost seems a little... He he goes between a lot of reactions to this, because there's points where he's like, well, this is the only logical thing to do, and I'm not, you know, it's not great, but, you know, we don't have good odds of it, but it's the best chance, you know? And then when he gets command of the ship, he stays to the, well, I have command of the ship, I don't have to do this, a little more than he needs to. As his mother points out, you know, any competent person can run this ship. Uh, Only you can save the father. We know that one of Spock's motivations is uh, greatest good for the greatest number. If Spock's running command of the ship, everyone on the ship but Sarek dies. If Scotty's running uh, command of the ship, everyone on the ship and Sarek lives. So therefore, he's going against his own philosophy by staying in captain. Yeah, but I think, you know... I think you're right because I don't think that Scotty has been in charge of the Enterprise before and the Enterprise has been fine. Yeah. So we know that Scotty is competent and I think there's – I think there's a bit of egotism on Scotty. There is. No, definitely. I agree with you. I think there's some some egotism there. I think there's some uh, hesitation about actually wanting to do this. Yeah. He he keeps saying, you know, well, regulations, regulations. But we've seen several times uh, Spock being tied in by regulations and – using a superior knowledge of other regulations in order to supersede those. Um, and I also if he think- had wanted to, yeah, even though he has these, this responsibility as the captain, acting captain, he could have figured out a way out of it. Yeah, and I, I mean, I, and I also think there's, there's something there with his mother because if I believe, you know, I kind of feel like if his mother hadn't been there, uh, he seems to almost want to be like super Vulcan around her. And, you know, there's that great scene with, with her and, and Spock and, and she says, you know, isn't there any part of you in me? You know, I raised you. I'm a human. Like what is going on? And he almost seems, 
he seems sad about it, but not allowing himself to to feel that sadness and yeah it just makes him want to be vulcan all the more that's it he's made this choice and his mother is a very living reminder of the human side of him i mean the human side of him most likely loves her very much yeah and feels that that's betraying the vulcan side the the does the series ever go into the possibility of Spock being able to resolve this conflict and maybe living in such a way which allows him not to have to choose between human and Vulcan, but being a very either a logical human or an emotional Vulcan? Not really. See, I think that would be an interesting struggle for that because— No, I think it would be too. And I mean, yeah. you know, the movies go a little bit more into that. Yeah. Um. I'm thinking specifically of Star Trek three. Okay. But it doesn't really ever become a huge factor. And I agree that I think it would be interesting to see that. And I think we see a little bit of that in the 2009 movie. Yeah. Because of course a child is going to have much less control over their emotions because their brains are not fully developed yet. And, yeah, there. The, this the struggle is very. It's there. I think it's definitely there, and I think you can see it in a lot of episodes of the original series. But it's done in a very subtle way, and you know maybe it's good that it's not so blatant. I don't know. I don't know. Um, yeah, and and there's an element there too. I think of. You know, Spock feels like a you know sort of like an interloper in his own. Yeah, culture because it, it's the it's the adoption thing, right? Yeah. Like, or the you know Im- immigrants to a new country often it. are more patriotic than natives. That's exactly it. The um and especially to be, you know, to be a half immigrant, you know, to have an immigrant parent and a native other parent, right? You know, that gives the which one do I side with? And yeah, if you're dealing with the, I'm going to be super patriotic because. I mean, face it this way, Spock is used to being an outsider. There is a reason he might not necessarily want to identify as human because identifying as more human on the Enterprise will make him a lot like everybody else. By sta- choosing to remain a Vulcan, he's the Vulcan. I mean, he is—everybody says he's known very much. He's very famous within Starfleet. Several people have said he's one of the best first officers in Starfleet. Um, I think part of him being the Vulcan is part of that mystique. I can't see him wanting to give that up, give out the part which makes him special. And yeah, because at the time I, I could be wrong about this, but I'm, I'm fairly sure that it was established later that at the time of the original series, Spock was the only Vulcan in Starfleet. That's interesting considering that the Vulcan started. Uh, no, yeah. Very, I, I still don't 100% understand the difference between Starfleet and Federation. Well, Starfleet, but... Starfleet was in existence before the Federation. And Starfleet is headquartered on Earth, specifically in San Francisco. And so uh, Starfleet was a human uh, organization that was sort of adopted by the Federation as its exploration military organization. Okay, so— But But there is still this implication that all the other Federation planets and members still do have their own uh, fleets. So perhaps, you know, know, we happen to see the Federation, but they may be equal to Vulcan science, you know, as when you just deal with the Federation. Okay, that Well, like the Vulcan Science Academy that was mentioned in this episode. Like, that that were his two choices, right? Like, he was either going to go to the Vulcan Science Academy or he was going to go to Starfleet Academy. And and he chose Starfleet. The implication from that, because they say, you know— well, he Kirk says, you know, well, with, you know, someone so science minded could have seen see so much more as part of Starfleet. Maybe then Starfleet is the one who's doing the more active things. But at Vulcan Science, they are just kind of more dealing with theory or, you know, inventing technology or something like that. So while I, I, I do not doubt for a second you would get an unparalleled education there, it would be very textbook. Right, right. You know. I mean, and we can't discount the the fact that, of course, you know, Spock was raised on the Vulcan. I think yeah. maybe he would be a much different person if he was raised on Earth. Of course. You know, I mean, I'm thinking of, um, I know you haven't seen too much Next Generation, and I don't want to get into it too much. But, uh, you know, it's a little difficult not to talk about yeah, yeah, later stuff just because it does have some relevance to the whole franchise. But uh, I'm thinking specifically of Worf because Worf was raised on Earth by human parents. And 
you know, if you use Spock as an example, you would maybe imagine that Worf would have been a little more human. And it's interesting because he's a full-blooded Klingon. He's not a half Klingon. So he really, really super tries hard to be like the best Klingon ever too. And he's conflicted by his upbringing on Earth. But it's not a biological thing. It's a more of a... Cultural? Cultural thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Because what I know of Vulcan culture versus Earth culture, I know there's more of a... uh, they, they, they're one of those proud warrior types, right? Like, they basically... Klingons honor, are. Yeah. yeah. Honor and combat and all of that, which is, while certainly human societies have had those values, that's not the implication in Starfleet. I mean, Kirk explicitly says, you know, violence is the very much the last resort. You know, we're dealing with exploration and peace. Right. Um, so... I mean, we also can't forget that... And also Vulcan apparently has... Um, uh live teddy bears i want one of those guys like that's so adorable i don't i, I don't know if i should ruin it for you or do you not. meet one yeah oh when uh animated series oh i can't wait they do some interesting things in the animated series because they obviously can, can... show a living teddy bear with six inch fangs yeah. okay um and he's adorable i believe it oh my god he's he like their pet and they like go from like gallant and does he talk he doesn't talk. No. Is he like Scooby Doo though? No. That doesn't talk. No. Does he like solve mysteries? No. He's on. He's a regular character though. Like no, he he's not. Some... Damn it! I want them to have a pet. Whatever this thing is, just like in once an episode, it does a trick. And like at the end, you can have like you know the the the, the, the fuzzies corner, and he like gives like a safety tip. Like remember, kids, when you're out in outer space, always drink your milk. Or I don't. I don't know what chips for space are this well is the 70s there's or... a there's a beagle on enterprise uh, like star trek enterprise that's a so you look for that to look forward to because there's not much else to look forward to in star trek enterprise but anyway um we we can't forget that spock presents vulcan though uh spock will never be able to pass for human anytime he needs to in the series he has to adopt a fairly elaborate disguise wear a hat wear a cloak or something like that so spock can't you think that's an elaborate disguise Hey, hey, it's I, I don't. <laughs> yes, I never wear disguises, so all disguises are elaborate to me. Okay. Um, I, Spock could never pretend to be fully human, so if he has to pick a side, which he feels he does, well, might as well be proud of the one he's got. Um, I think it's one of those which he he he's taken that shame as to being an outsider in human society due to this and turned it into pride in a way because he is proud as hell anytime anybody compares him to a computer or praises his logic or says he's not human he takes it as a compliment you know he gets mildly insulted anybody well that's funny because i think in the first season there was a a throwaway joke at the end of one episode where uh, i think mccoy or kirk says that um, oh your father was a computer and spock is like oh well thank you very much that was very nice and it's it it, it's interestingly colored once you meet uh his father in this episode and also know that their relationship isn't the warmest yeah yeah it's it's an interesting line in that light what I also think is very interesting is that in order to side with his father, he has to kill his father or allow his father to die. Because the emotional decision, the decision his mother is urging him to make is, you know, figure out a way to not be captain, you know, give this transfusion and save his life. Uh, you know, that's what anybody who gave even the tiniest shit about their father would do. It's it, That's that. And Spock is saying, no, well, the logical thing is to stay in command, you know. Which is his father's philosophy, and again, that's the one that's going to lead to his father's death. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I don't know if there's anything more to say about that. I just found it kind of interesting. Well, thank you for bringing that up. I did not find the solution to the mystery interesting because it was not foreshadowed at all. The Orions... Okay, you're talking about the Orions now? Yeah, now, Orions, from what I know about them, they're the Green Slave Girls. Right. Okay. They don't sound like a very nice culture. They're not. I, I don't like Orion. Uh, they're, it's in, Okay, so uh, Orions are never really fleshed out very much. Um, we from, I, I remember from the first episode seeing one, and she was fresh, fleshed out pretty well, my <laughs> friend. Oh! Hey-o. Uh, no, it, it, they, they are sort of like the space pirates, kind of, and they're not ever really anything that's really ever... I mean, they're sort of there, but... When you need a hot alien, you get an Orion. When you need a generic enemy, you get an Orion. That's basically they, they do. Uh, 
they do some things with the Ryans in the animated series, I think, and then again in Enterprise. And in the 2009, her as roommates in Orion. As yeah, well. yeah. Um, Where they're... she's implied to not at all be a slave girl or anything. Well... Really? Because, I mean, I, she's only briefly seen, and she's definitely given the... Uh, it, 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 they definitely make clear that she enjoys her body, but other than that, she's sharing a dorm with her. Uh, so one would assume that they're both students. Should I should I tell Richard the secret of Orion's? What's the secret of Orion's? Yeah, because we're not going to get to it for a long time. You're going to completely forget by then. Orion's slave girls are actually in charge. Okay. And it's a elaborate ruse. Okay. On their part. Okay, so in other words, they're the, the males one... are actually the ones that are the slaves, and it's a it's a it's a matriarchal society. So in other words, they're stripping because it pays a hell of a lot more than uh, working at the grocery store. No, it's just they're yeah. I mean, yeah. It's like... <laughs> like they 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 have figured out a way to just make it work, and they're like, oh, you know, I'm good. So they're pretending. They're pretending. That's total retcon after the feminist movement, wasn't it? Uh, yeah. Okay. They, this was like eight, six years ago. <laughs> This was the last season of Enterprise, which was sort of like um, officially sanctioned fan fiction. Okay. Uh, I love the fourth season of Enterprise for exactly that reason. I, but I, I, it's, if it's, you want to watch some shitty Star Trek, it's, it's fun. It's total official, officially sanctioned fan fiction. I mean, it's like, we're going to bring back Orions. We're going to bring back Tellarites. We're going to talk about Andorians. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. Oh, look, we're going to explain why the Klingons have ridges in the uh, later series and don't have ridges in the original series. Like, it's just so that basically kind of thing. just speculation about... We haven't seen Klingons, right? Or have we? Yeah, we've seen Klingons. When, 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 was when? Um, uh, oh, what was the name of the episode? Um, I don't know. I'm asking you. Why would I... <laughs> oh, I just... Happy birthday. It's a trick. <laughs> Uh, why can't I remember this? Uh, you know, it was the episode with the um, energy beings, and they were on the planet, and the Klingons are there taking it over. Oh, is this the one with the um? Gene Alcun wrote it. I, 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 yeah, but what happened? Was that the um? Hang on, hang on. Um, because I know they were they do all this weird shit with like they have powers or something. What what was the plot of this episode? No, it was they were going to this planet because the yeah. Klingons were going to take it over. Yeah, and, and they're just like, no, we can be okay. Right, Don't right. they make, like, nothing work or something like that? Correct. Okay. Yeah. What happened at the end of that? That was not a one of my favorites. It's okay. It? I don't remember the name of it, which is driving me crazy, but I'm getting old and my brain isn't working. So, uh, Klingon Fantastic 3. We've already the spent reckoning. way too much time talking and thinking about this. Let's just move on. Okay. So, so that's what happened with the Orions. You know, it, it's it's fine. You know, it, it's interesting because this episode makes me realize that Spock would be a shitty detective. You would think he would be a really great one because he would be very impartial. He has no intuition. He has no leaps of logic. He does he, the the Andorian or Teleridi the, the the guy with the antennae. Explicitly, Andorian. The Andorian, you know, explicitly says like, you know, murder is not logical. You have to look for reasons of passion or greed and. You know, that's why people murder. It's not people murder logically. And you know what's interesting about that, though, which I just thought of is, is murder illegal on Vulcan? I don't know. I mean, because if you if it's such a logical society and if you I mean, presumably there's no crimes of passion on Vulcan. So if you can like if you if you murder someone and then the police come, if they even have police, I, I guess they do. Uh, or the tribunal or whatever, and you're like, well, no, I killed him because blah, blah, blah. Do they just go, oh, okay, well, that's logical, and let you go? Like, that seems weird. Well, I mean, I think the... Because the... Obviously, in the Ponfar, you know, murder can happen there, and that's sanctioned, and I'd assume that... I would assume that if one had a grudge with another Vulcan... Maybe there would be even some kind of dueling kind of arrangement that existed, you know? In other words, somebody wouldn't just murder somebody. Somebody would say, look, you know, here are the reasons that this I want this person to die. But but in this episode, they did say that Vulcans have this technique for humanely killing someone by breaking their neck. And, like, you wouldn't use that in a duel. But you would use that in a combat situation or if you needed to infiltrate something or something like that, which— there could be many logical and passionless reasons for that, and but why would like just out of si- no, but I, out, out of simple 
you want to kill somebody as quickly as if you're stealthing, you need to kill someone as quickly as possible because why do you just kill them? Why don't you just knock them out then? They've got that Vulcan neck pinch that makes them go to sleep. Look, I don't know. Maybe they need to die for a reason. And what's with the neck thing in Vulcan? I never know. I've never realized how much Vulcans do with the neck. Well, maybe it's a Vulcan anatomy is very different. Maybe their necks just happen to be more uh, sensitive or happen to be a more of a vital spot. I mean, there's. You know, like a lot of human attacks go to the groin because that's oh, a very God. sensitive. Now I'm, now I'm thinking about umaks. Ugh. About don't, don't even ask. I, I want to know what an umak. We'll is. get to it later. Okay. Um. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe it's as simple as the neck is just a more sensitive area on Vulcans than it is on humans. And could be. Yeah. It, it could. I mean, that's again coming up with a reason after the fact, but it could be just as simple as something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Okay. Well, you know. We haven't really talked too much about the, the, the I guess the, the the top level of this, which is the the, the Federation uh, Council thing going on, which obviously it's a it's 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 kind of the MacGuffin of the episode. It's just there to set yeah. this action up and get everything going on. But um, what do you what do you make of the fact that this episode sort of establishes that while the Federation is a governing body? They have these strong disagreements between their members. And, I mean, Sarek even says that uh, at one point, uh, you'll find out how my government is going to vote at the meeting. Yeah. So it's kind of unclear about how exactly this federation is even set up and governed. It might even be something like a United Nations type of organization. I mean— Certainly, if you had a country which was applying for admission to the United Nations, all of the members would have to discuss that and would have to say, you know, look at their application and, you know, decide whether it was a good thing to admit them or not. And I, it, it seems like a very similar case here. They've just discovered this country or this this planet, and this planet has just applied for Federation status. And so, yeah, it, I think it it's... makes sense for them to need to discuss this because if— if they don't get an agreement with all of the Federation nations, well, they can't just let anybody in. I think it's interesting in light of like the later Star Treks, which I think more closely establish uh, the Federation as more of like a United States type of Federation okay. than, than a than a United Nations, which doesn't really have any governing power over yeah, its I, member I mean, states. It, it definitely gives the implication of being a stronger body. But that way. but in this episode, it's kind of set up. I mean, because the whole thing about Sarek having this um, argument with the Tellarite is that the the Tellarite, who I believe his name was like. What was his name? Sar or something? Uh-huh. I don't know. It was like a pig name. Um, I love I love Tellarites, by the way. I think they're they're grossly <laughs> underused, and they should be in every single episode of Star Trek ever. By the way, what were the little gold guys? Are they? I feel like I should know what they're called, they but I'm not adorable. sure. They were adorable. I want to be friends with them. Yeah, and I like their drink. It was like yeah. it looked like candied fruit that they were pouring like liquor over. Yeah. Like, what the <laughs> hell are they drinking? Um, and they were wearing little fezzes. Yeah, they were festive. Like the wow. Okay. Um, they were. <laughs> makes you wonder though like okay if you're that colorful and you drink these things like when you have holidays are you just eating beige foods no they get even more colorful whoa they like change colors like they, like flashes they can see like different wavelengths of light than us and so that yeah, yeah. uh so it's going to set up at this the, the tellarites are wanting to do something with the dilithium on Corridin that the Vulcans don't want them to do because it's not in the best interests of the Federation, well, well, which is weird. What and... it seems like is that so this um this this planet apparently has a very small population. They're extremely mineral rich, um, and then the implication is that the Tellarides and other um, races, assumedly, are essentially. Going down, making all these illegal mining operations, you know, just setting up in an area where no one's around and just essentially grabbing as much as they can. So I'd assume that a major reason for their application to the Federation is because they just simply need the protection. They don't have the possibility. So in return so, so in return for protection, they're going to give the Federation a major cut of their mining. And other species are going to set up legal mining operations there because – the, and the other implication is that the, they say the planet's underpopulated. They can't they can't mine the planet as much as it could be because there's not enough people there. So Sarex is basically saying this is a planet that's underutilized for resources. If it's under the Federation, then everybody can benefit from having this, from having because for obvious reasons, having a major dilithium mine in the Federation's uh, 
you know, ownership is a good thing. Sure. The Tellarides, meanwhile, are sneaking in, grabbing this for themselves, and they're going to get a smaller cut if it's to everybody, because right now they pretty much are mining as much as they please. So... They want it deregulated. So Tellar is sort of like a combination of New Jersey and Alaska? Pretty much. All right. Okay. Well, they do look like pigs, so there you go. All right, so do we have anything else to talk about with Journey to Babel? Uh, not that much. Okay. I liked it. It gets seven triples because Chekhov was in it. Okay. He, uh... Just like, just at, seven. At one point, he has to go to somebody... Like, he's taking the helm or whatever, or the phaser thingy, and he taps the guy on the shoulder, and it's like, ew, Chekhov touched him! Chekhov literally jerked off 30 seconds ago oh, and did not wash his hand and just touched that man's shoulder oh my god oh god it's like gold. he he has he has the gold shirt with like a blotchy stain on it just of white and orange Ugh. there is one thing that i forgot to bring up that i i would like to mention just because i think it's adorable and very cute is when at the uh buffet of alien races not not that they're eating the alien races just the 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 buffet you know which features many guests of alien races uh mccoy uh basically corners spock's mother and (laughs) interrogates him her about spock's childhood yeah and like really wants to find some dirt on him which is how he finds out about the teddy bear he's getting his friend's mom to tell him about yeah. bath times get, get him showing bath photos i think that's <laughs> great because it really shows that mccoy pretends not to like spock but they have a very interesting friendship yeah which is predicated on fucking with each other oh yeah you know and he knows that you know spock is going to find a way to do the same but and I love McCoy at the end of this episode because he finally gets, uh, you know, because McCoy doesn't really have that much of a, in the chain of command, he's not that, he's never going to get the helm of the ship. Right. But the sick bay is completely his domain, you know, wherever he, wh- whoever's in the sick bay, McCoy wins. And both Spock and Kirk are in the sick bay and he can finally order them around and they can't do anything about it. And I like the fact that he tells Spock to shut up. Yeah. But he shushes Kirk. <laughs> like, that just tells you something right there. Yeah. All right. And he's just got this shit-eating grin at the end and he's just so happy. Oh, yeah, because, of course, it's like the, <laughs> the meta comment where he's like, finally, I get the last word. End credits. Yeah. You can tell he's going to give them really bad food for the next week and a lot of shots. I really, really, I know that this would have been a little too campy even for the original series, but I kind of wanted DeForest Kelly to just, like, look directly into the camera for that line. And wink. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Now, we had a lot of fun today, but there's something that's not fun. Getting stabbed in the kidney. (laughs) (laughs) Please donate blood to the American Red Cross in case your captain gets stabbed in the kidney. William Shatner comes out and he just is in a dark room with a stool and he sits down and says, the more you know. (laughs) Because, of course, this was on NBC. Hi, my name is Sarek. If you have, you know, blood, you should... Uh, uh, all right uh 10 triples 10 triples i love this episode i can see why it's yeah. it's top five for me definitely it was a really good one i don't know if it's my favorite episode of the original series okay. no it's not devil in the dark is definitely my favorite of the oh. original series but uh fleshing out my top five here i think we've had three of my top five so far yeah. maybe four i'm not sure i can't wait till triples it's soon i know but not next week not next week what's next week friday's child and the deadly years are these gonna be the kind of episodes that they sound like they're going to be based on the title. Probably. Well, motherfucker.